Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality, I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that. And now you do. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. All right, everyone, welcome back. We're here for another episode of Back from the Borderline. I'm really excited for this one because we are going to be diving into the work of a psychologist, actor, director, teacher, workshop leader named Paul Rabio. He was born in 1931 and passed away in February 2010. Paul was a member of the Human Potential Movement and an author of the book The Call to Adventure, Bringing the Hero's Journey to Daily Life. Many of you know how much I love depth psychology, as well as the work of Joseph Campbell, who's the one who coined the phrase, the hero's journey. And if you're a long-term listener of the podcast, you will know that about a year and a half ago, I did a 21-episode deep dive guided visualization series called The Hero's Journey, where we moved through each of the cards of the major arcana of the tarot. Many of you loved this series, and if you'd like to listen to that, you can sign up for my Patreon at 
patreon.com slash back from the borderline. Paul Rabio was born in May 19th, 1931, and he was initially trained in philosophy and education, and he also specialized in drama. So he worked with several theater companies as a writer, producer, and actor. He also engaged in military service, which took him for a year to Japan, where he produced and directed radio programs for the U.S. Army's Far East Radio Network. His exposure to the Japanese culture, and particularly to no, the stylized and ritualized form of Japanese drama, was subsequently to become an important influence on his use of ritual and gesture in his later work as a psychologist. When he returned to the United States, Paul Rabio developed an experimental theater department at San Francisco State College, and in the same period, he worked with Mumako, a Japanese mime, developing his understanding of ritual gesture, meditation postures, which shape the energies to the attitude expressed by the gesture, which actually became a key element in his later work. In 1968, after a year of teaching at Stanford University's theater department, he founded in San Francisco the Gestalt Fool Theater Company, a commune and a radical performance group, and commenced experimental work combining theater, ritual, and therapy. Now, Paul's theater work, as well as his own personal experience of a very severe existential crisis, led him in 1971 to the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. It was there where he worked with another psychologist who we are going to be diving into uh, in future episodes, named Stan Groff and John C. Lilly, and he trained in gestalt practice with Esalen's co-founder, Dick Price. It was at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, that Paul Rabio met Joseph Campbell, who is an expert in comparative mythology and believed monomyths, or motifs of adventure and transformation that were found in all heroic tales, could be found in all cultures. These encounters with these key individuals within these psychological movements laid the foundation for Paul Rabio's subsequent work in the human potential movement. In 1972, Paul Rabio worked on the psychiatric wards of community hospitals in Turlock and Martinez, California, and there he shared his own experience of mental suffering and how he emerged from it. And in 1973, drawing on the work of Joseph Campbell and integrating gestalt practice, which is a humanistic and holistic form of therapy that we'll also touch on in future episodes, he integrated gestalt practice, movement, meditation, ritual, group process, drama, art, and music, and it was through these different modalities that he structured his own take on the hero's journey. Paul Rabio's name is most widely associated with this self-discovery process. So what was so unique about Rabio's approach? He was particularly struck by the suffering and confusion resulting from contemporary society's lack of significant rites of passage. Paul felt that without shamans or ritual masters or elders to guide them, modern individuals have to find their own lonely and sometimes traumatic paths from one stage of life to another. 
Hence, a fundamental theme of his work is personal transformation through ritual enactment. His understanding of the power of myth and ritual helped him design a self-discovery process that he felt would enrich, heal, and awaken individuals to their own inner quest and the transpersonal dimensions in their lives. His experience of gestalt practice led him to believe that each character in a myth actually represents a facet of oneself. Hence, experiencing a myth from inside and from all points of view, he viewed as a way to reconnect with oneself and to reach renewed awareness. His background in theater had convinced him of the capacity of bodily gesture and movement to reveal and to transform the point of view of the mind and the attitude of the heart. He believed that uniting the dimensions of body, heart, and mind in order to ensure that one is true to oneself would lead to healing and inner liberation. To this approach, he added work with groups, whereby group members would support one another in their individual inner journeys, which he considered to be one of the most healing aspects of this work. As you know, it's important to me that we dive into the backgrounds of the people that we're going to explore. And in our last three episodes, which if you haven't listened to those, that's okay. But if you're listening chronologically to the podcast, the last three episodes, I did a three-part deep dive called Trauma Worlds, where we explored the work of Marion Woodman, who is a Jungian analyst and actually also someone who led these different types of group processes. She deeply believed in the work of Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, and also the importance of ritual, rites of passage, initiatory experiences, and the combination of drama, movement, gesture, dance, singing, and myth and mysticism. And she believed that these things led to deep and profound healing. So these psychologists that we're going to be diving into over the next few episodes of the podcast, all are swimming in this same pool. We are deeply disconnected in the West from rites of passage, from myth and meaning. And when we don't have a myth or some kind of spiritual belief, when we don't have elders in our lives to guide us from one phase of our life to the next, we are left to flounder and figure these things out for ourselves. So it's by breathing new life into these relatively unknown people in psychology, their work is profoundly impactful and important and well-known in these smaller depth psychological circles. But the average person who's seeking help for their mental health is not going to run across the work of Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, Marion Woodman, Paul Rabio, you know, all these different depth psychologists in their search for what I call ABC123 therapy that fits neatly within the biomedical model that wants to diagnose us with disorder or dysfunction labels, throw us on a pill, and send us out the door. And I'm not saying these things can't be helpful, that medications can't be helpful, but without a connection to our inner sense of meaning, oftentimes, even if we feel like our symptoms might be better and we might be numbed or suppressed by certain medications, we still feel like there's just something missing. And this podcast is all about me documenting my own journey and the work of these incredible people has helped me. So it's what I hope to be able to do 
is to bring their words to you. Now, I ran across an article by Paul Rabio called The Power of Story and Myth, The Genesis of an Approach to Healing. And we're going to be reading it together and I'll be reacting to it. And I thought I would make this episode a bit more of a guided, calming, visualization, story time vibe episode. So I'm going to be playing solfeggio frequencies behind my voice. I'll be trying to just read this in a very calming tone. And the intention is for you to listen to this somewhere where you can really tune into yourself and get into the words. And so we don't interrupt the flow of this beautiful calming episode. I'd like to take an opportunity to give a shout out to my two podcast sponsors. And my first sponsor is Jung Platform. Jung Platform is an online education platform that offers courses, events, and resources related to the teachings of Carl Jung and depth psychology. Jung Platform was founded to make insights and wisdom of Jungian psychology more accessible to a broader audience. The courses available on Jung Platform cover a range of topics, including Jungian psychology, mythology, dream analysis, and related fields. And the offerings are designed to help us deepen our understanding of ourselves and explore the realms of the unconscious. The courses on Jung Platform are led by experienced and knowledgeable instructors who have expertise in Jungian psychology and all of the related disciplines. I have taken multiple courses from Jung Platform and I actually reached out to them because I thought this was a beautiful idea for a partnership and they agreed. So if you'd like to check out their offerings, the two courses that I love the most were the Active Imagination course and the Jungian Tarot course by Dr. Ken James. So to get 10% off your first course, you can go ahead and visit the link in my bio or just go to backfromtheborderline.com. You'll want to click the specific link there and use the code MOLLY10 to get your discount. My second sponsor is Pure Spectrum CBD. Pure Spectrum CBD is a small family-owned company based out of Evergreen, Colorado. They focus on the finest quality products and have even worked with some of the biggest sporting bodies in the United States. CBD has been incredibly helpful for me, particularly their CBD CBN nighttime tincture. I have a difficult time falling asleep and staying asleep during my menstrual cycle and this tincture has been a game changer for me. But as always, not everything that works for me will work for you. So be sure that if you're taking any other medications and you're concerned about potential interactions, you discuss these things with your doctor. You can also find the link to Pure Spectrum on my website, backfromtheborderline.com. You can click in there and you'll get a discount off of your first order. So now we'll take a quick break for a few dynamically inserted ads from my podcast host. These are similar to the ads you hear on YouTube. I don't pick these. They just slot them in for me and my sponsors, as well as these dynamically placed ads, help me continue making this content available to listeners who choose to tune in for free. If you'd like to unlock ad-free episodes of Back from the Borderline, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, you can sign up to become a premium member at patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. So without further ado, let's jump straight into these ads, and when we come back, we'll jump straight in to this article by Paul Rabio.
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. The power of story and myth. The Genesis of an Approach to Healing by Paul Rabio. Once someone asked Gregory Bateson how we would know when the computer was actually able to think as a human being. He thought for a moment and then said, the day when someone proposes a question to the computer and after some spinning and whirring, the computer comes up with a message. Let me tell you a story. It is through the telling of stories that much of the world's wisdom is communicated. And for many Aboriginal peoples, it's by the passing on of tales that history is remembered. The Lakota Sioux would gather around the winter fire and tell not only the stories of creation and the history of the tribe, but also the development of human consciousness in tales such as the adventures of Jumping Mouse and the stories of the White Buffalo Woman. In Ireland, the tales of the Great Ulster Cycle, of which the Tian Bo Kualin is probably the best known, date from at least 100 BC and were transmitted in an oral storytelling tradition for 900 years before they were first recorded in manuscript form. A story integrates an idea of the mind with the feelings of the heart and the sensations of the body. Even if the intellectual message is not understood, the teaching may be realized by the soul, beyond words. Sufis know this and communicate most of their teaching through stories. Zen Buddhists also weave much of their meditation and enlightenment secrets into a tapestry of stories. And the teachings of Christ are most often contained in parables studied and interpreted on Sunday mornings throughout the Christian world. I have been attracted to myth, that special form of story, since childhood. Looking at pictures of Greek and Egyptian mythic figures, I would imagine what it would be like to have been alive at that time, never realizing that I was, and am, alive in the eternity of these stories. I worked with myths when I was a theater director and teacher of actors, and later as a gestalt therapist, I found new meaning in them. In 1972 and 1973, I was working with the staff of the lockup ward in a hospital at Turlock, California. The psychiatrist in charge and the staff were following the Langian idea that mental illness is not actually an illness, but a movement toward health. The patients did not get drugs unless they asked for them, 
and so the ward was filled with people in quite active states of disorder and distress. If a patient had to be vigiled, sat with in a safe room as she experienced serious rage in relation to, for example, her father, the accompanying staff member could experience some pretty traumatic re-stimulation if she also had unresolved issues with her father. I was there to help with that problem, to assist the staff working through their own material. One evening, as we relaxed after the day's work, one of the nurses mentioned to me how envious she felt of the patients who had managed to go through their illness and come out the other side, and I was struck with an idea. What if I was to create a rite of passage for doctors, nurses, and psychiatric social workers to give them an experience of their own madness in a kind of ritual dramatization. That way, they would have some inkling from the inside of what their patients were experiencing and be helped to approach them more from a position of familiarity and less as a textbook case. I was already familiar with the work of Joseph Campbell and John Weir Perry, they had suggested that many of the images that appear in the classic mythic archetype of the hero's journey are also images that frequently appear in an episode of Schizophrenia. So I took the plot structure, indicated by Joseph Campbell, and I created a kind of ritual drama for people to experience. The results were quite dramatic. People told me that they found themselves much more capable and ready to do things that they only dreamed of doing before, that they had found a kind of courage that they never dreamed they possessed. As to whether the structure really ritually dramatized madness, I cannot say. Some who had gone through the process thought that it did, others disagreed. However, whatever did happen was clearly a change for the better. Intrigued by this, I decided to study the mythic experience more intensely, particularly as it related to Greek theater. I visited Greece, went to many of the ancient sites, and spent time trying to evoke the quality of life that existed there during the Golden Age. I was particularly intrigued by the healing center at Epidaurus because theater had a special part in the healing arts practiced there. Following a series of preparatory treatments, patients, those who were out of harmony with themselves, with nature and the gods, would be sent to the theater because they would have a chance to experience the interaction of archetypes, as the Greeks regarded the gods and goddesses with mortal human beings. This was a very important aspect of the healing process. At that time, the audience identified very closely with the actor. When the main character experienced the climax of the tragedy, Medea or Agave, for example, killing her own child, the audience felt as if it were their own act and felt deeply too the consequences of that act. Through this deep identification, the audience members lived the mythic material and went home refreshed. He or she could experience the deed and its consequences without having to act it out in real life. 
That is why tragedy is called theater of exhalation, because as in many of the experiential therapies, people could have a full cathartic experience without hurting themselves or anyone else. The patient at Epidaurus would then go to be initiated into the service of the god or goddess with whom he or she had been out of harmony. The gods and goddesses were the expression of archetypal forms. Each one incarnated at a certain level of human experience and since these experiences are common to all human beings, the gods and goddesses were seen as immortal. One would go to the temple of Apollo, god of reason and harmony, and see wonderfully balanced architecture, hear the highly organized music of the harp or lyre, and see the statue of a beautiful young man playing the harp. These images impressed upon the conscious and subconscious mind the character of the god Apollo. And just as the initiation at Eleusis was an experience of becoming one with Demeter and Persephone, so the initiation into the service of Apollo was the experience of owning the archetype, becoming one with the god of reason and harmony. In the temple, the archetype was projected outward. By meditating on the form of the god and the participating in the temple rites, one learned to understand that specific archetype. And through initiation, the archetype was assimilated, owned, and integrated. This was accomplished, of course, only after the initiate was sufficiently well prepared so as to not be overwhelmed by the archetypal energy. Following my visit to ancient Greece, I decided to create a workshop structure based on the classical healing processes as a way to work with individual myths. I call this structure manifesting your myth as a creative process. Participants chose a myth that they'd like to work with beforehand, but I believe that it's not essential to analyze that myth and find all the connections to one's life in advance. Trust must be placed in the subconscious, and that enables the participant to choose the story that is right for them. I deliberately ask people to choose a myth rather than a fairy tale, because in a myth, there's generally some interaction between mortals and the gods or archetypes. This confrontation between different levels is very important. Once the myth has been chosen, we begin what I call the temple aspect of the work. The body is the temple in which we meditate on the story. Each student distills his or her myth down to the essential cast of characters which might include animals, plants, and even mineral figures. The students spend some time dancing out these characters, giving them form and substance and discovering which touch them the most and from which they feel most distanced. My intention is to give each person the chance to integrate all the characters in his or her myth as much as possible. This resembles the way Fritz Perls worked with dreams. My teacher, Richard Price, told me that Fritz claimed that if one could own all the figures in their dream, their neurosis could be healed. I believe this can also apply to myths. We can imagine that myths are in some way the dreams of the human species. 
integrating the fragments of the human personality contained in each myth can be very healing. However, this requires that all the figures be explored, identified, and integrated. The students now create a movement meditation to help with their integration process. After the characters have been explored through unstructured dance, they find a posture to represent each of the figures in the myth. Each of these postures is a psychological gesture, summarizing the feelings and qualities of each figure. During the next step, in which participants slowly move from one figure to the next, much of the story is already communicated and embodied. All that remains is to find the transitions or changes that take place in the characters as the story unfolds. I call this bodily script the fool's dance. In the tarot, the character of the fool is the zero card, and the other cards are ranked in groups of seven around the fool, who represents life energy. Some say that the other figures are merely empty postures until the fool dances through them, hence the name Fool's Dance. When people are dancing their fool's dance, it looks a little like a form of Tai Chi, except that all the postures are individual and personal rather than predetermined. Through the fool's dance, participants live out their stories on every day of the workshop. Each day, we focus on different aspects of the story, allowing for some integration each time the dance is performed. When the fool's dance has been perfected, we enter into the phase that I call theater. Each participant, playing the central character, will dramatize either their complete myth or its most important scenes with members of the group playing the other roles. The participant chooses a director from the group and someone to be his or her substitute. The substitute will play the principal role, both when the protagonist and the director are setting up the dramatization and when the protagonist chooses to play another character. The director helps cast the roles, places in the room to the stage and the scenes and does a quick run through of the story with the people exploring their parts. Those involved in the various scenes then decorate the room for the performance, and the play begins. Initially, the protagonist plays the main character, and others improvise their roles to the best of their ability. After the first performance, the group, and particularly the protagonist, share their experiences. Everyone joins in, because the experience of even a minor player can be very illuminating to the person working. The protagonist then has the option to repeat the dramatization, he or she can play the central role again, or another, or even explore scenes not included in the story to help understand the relationships between the characters. Or they can now watch the myth from the outside, with the substitute in their leading role. Following the dramatization, we spend time working with the personal material that's emerged in the course of the enactment. I encourage the group to try as much as possible to find solutions to personal problems, as well as sources of encouragement, support, and inspiration within the context of the myth. I remember a woman whose son was dying of AIDS, and who was very troubled as to how to deal with this situation. The only feeling she could contact was raging anger. 
she was unsure of which myth that she could select. So someone suggested that she chose the Christ story and focus on Mary, Christ's mother. She did. In previous dramatizations, she had a lot of difficulty feeling herself incapable, continually falling out of character through self-criticism. Playing the roles of Christ and Mary was very important for her. She had no trouble acting out difficult passages of following the crucifixion path and taking Jesus down from the cross. She worked through much of her anguish over her son's situation and found the strength to do so in the role of Mary. Some months later, her son died. She said that she found a great deal of healing strength in the personage of Mary that she had played, and she found that she could call on that strength in her most difficult moments. Following the process, she could still, of course, access the rage that had possessed her before, but now all the other feelings surrounding so intimate a death were available to her, along with the strength to endure them. Another way of working at this point in the structure is to do some gestalt dramatization work. A variety of gestalt techniques can be used to explore and relate the mythic drama to the person's life story. I recall a man who is working on the myth of Ganymede, the beautiful young man that Zeus brings to Olympus to be the cup-bearer for the gods and goddesses. Before this, the cup-bearer was Hebe, and was set up as an improvisation in which Zeus brings Ganymede up to Olympus and tells Hebe that she no longer has this position. The protagonist, rather than playing Ganymede, was playing Zeus. The woman playing Hebe was not going to be easily displaced. Zeus did everything he could think of to convince Hebe that she should give up her position. He seduced her, joked with her, tried to convince her that another job would be more agreeable, but she would have none of it. The protagonist was the only son in a family of five sisters and had never experienced his full power in relationship to them. Finally, one of the other participants asked him what he really thought that Zeus would do in this situation. At that, he picked up the woman who played Hebe and removed her from the room, expelling her from Olympus, effectively finding the power of Zeus and resolving the problem at the same time. It was the first time in his life that he had experienced such power. Although it was not a solution to his problems on the everyday level, it was a very important discovery for him, so different from the Ganymede character, who is carried out by Zeus as if he were a submissive child. The last part of the process is for the person to create an initiation for him or herself which is enacted in the present with the participants of the group. Instead of initiating upward into the strata of the archetypes, I bring the story down to the level of here and now contact and interaction. I ask everyone to create a challenge for themselves, arising from their chosen myth, and to interpret it in a way that can be explored with the group. This need not necessarily be the main problem of the main character in the story, though the exploration of their myth participants may have found something else more enriching and necessary to their development. 
Each one creates a gestalt experiment through which to explore new behaviors, with the group members responding as authentically as they can. A wide range of possibilities are available and participants can be very creative. The initiations are very personal and give a chance to bring the material of the myth into present here and now manifestations. The final step is to explore how the figures of the myth can help in our day-to-day -day life situations. As a last example, I will take a woman who had worked on the myth of Theseus. In the story, Theseus has a titanic battle with the Minotaur. This woman was a very timid and worked for a very male chauvinist boss who treated her as if she were a stupid little child, saying things like, if you can find the letter S in the file cabinet, get me the Smith file. Tired of such treatment, she needed to find her own power and begin to use it. Once after having worked on her myth, when he spoke to her that way, she turned away from him and remembered the posture of the Minotaur in her fool's dance. She briefly took the posture, coming into contact once again with her own personal power. Then she turned back to him and said, I don't like it when you talk to me like that and I don't want you to ever talk to me like that again. And he never did. I think we can look upon the richness of our mythology as a great storehouse of ancient wisdom. However, it's a wisdom that goes beyond rational understanding. It must be experienced in such a way that it can be fully realized and brought to bear on our present day problems. We can learn from the wisdom of the ancestors. The dramatized stories and myths were their psychotherapy. Our task today is to find out how to apply them to our present age. So that's the end of the article. I'm going to link it in the episode description in case you'd like to go back and read it again, or maybe take out certain parts that you may choose to incorporate into your own life. It surprises me that we don't hear more about these really integrative forms of working through our personal struggles. Right now, we're living in a time where we really pathologize the human experience. And what do I mean by that? It means that, for example, if a wife loses her husband and she's grieving three months later and she goes and sees a doctor, the first line of defense may just be to throw her on an antidepressant instead of understanding that grief is a normal human process. But the systems of the biomedical model of mental health are often set up to where if you're not productive and you're able to get straight back to work and just get over what you're going through, then something is wrong with you. But grief, suffering, anger, fear, rage, depression, all of these things are part of the human experience. And we must be able to dive into these experiences and move through them in order to find meaning. And I thought there were so many powerful lessons to be taken from this article by Paul Rabio. And while we may not in our everyday life be able to join one of these workshops where we can really move this through with a group of people, but I've done forms of this myself. For example, I'm a really big fan of the tarot. And 
if you are interested in trying this out, you can buy yourself a tarot deck. I highly recommend the Rider Waite Smith deck. It's a very standard deck. It has the most popular archetypal images. There are lots of different types of tarot decks if you're new to it, and all of them have different artists and different images, but I recommend this deck because it has the most familiar ones that you'll be able to tap into most easily with active imagination. And when you get the deck, you'll want to remove the major arcana cards. So the major arcana cards are like death, justice, temperance, strength, the moon, the star, you get the gist, the magician, the empress, the high priestess. Take all of those cards out and set them to the side. And you'll want to pick out the suits and the court cards, you know, like the, the wands, the cups, the pentacles, etc and all of like the page of wands the this and that separate all of those and put them to one side and just keep the major arcana and so you're going to have in your hand the the cards that i referred to you know the star the devil the, these all these different cards and set aside and keep safe the other ones but you're going to want to every single day draw one of the major arcana cards and look up online wherever you'd like about those different cards and try to find the esoteric meanings of these cards i highly recommend looking into the interpretations of elliot adam dr elliot adam he has beautiful interpretations online draw one of these cards and gaze at the image learn about the myth and then really try to understand how that archetype applies to your life what lessons might that card have for you? If you're a writer, can you write an interactive story about yourself embodying the energy or where that energy could be helpful in your life? If you prefer to express yourself through painting or drawing, you don't have to be good at it either, but if it's something you want to do, paint how this archetype makes you feel. If you feel called to do so, put on a song that reminds you of that archetype and dance it out. Take a tip from Paul Rabio. What is a posture that that archetype would take? And can you feel that posture in your body? And when you need the strength of that particular archetype, can you take that posture in your everyday life? Another great tip that you can incorporate some of this is find a book on Celtic myths, Nordic myths, ancient indigenous myths, Greek mythology, any culture that you feel particularly drawn to, every culture has beautiful myths. And like Paul Rabio suggests, make sure you find something that includes like people and also gods and deities, right? Don't choose a fairy tale because what you're trying to do is find a story or a myth that talks about gods and humans and kind of how they interact with one another. And start reading those stories and try out some of the suggestions in this article. Can you act out in your own time the story of that character? Can you creatively write about that story? Can you dance it out? Challenge yourself to approach your mental well-being in a new way that connects your mind, body, voice, movement, psyche, all of these things together because so often most of us are only thinking about mental health through purely intellectual ways 
I was definitely guilty of this and it kept me stuck for a really long time because what I felt was, okay, I get it. I know about my childhood trauma. I know all the things I missed out on, but why do I feel so empty and so meaningless still? And once I started doing this kind of work, that's when I really started feeling myself transforming. And these myths started to move me through these initiatory rites. I started to understand the meaning of my suffering. I started to see myself and other people that I knew in these different cyclical, mythical patterns. So I hope this has been helpful for you. Thank you so much for being here with me on this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to unlock full-length ad-free episodes of Back from the Borderline, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, you can sign up to be a premium member at patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. If you choose to continue listening for free, that's okay too. You can support my work by rating or reviewing the podcast on your favorite podcast app or following me on Instagram at backfromtheborderline. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weakness, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you would dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. And remember, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.